Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 94, The Day the Music Died. And welcome to episode 94 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, this episode is dropping on February 3rd, 2019. And for the first time in a while, probably since I did my breakfast club, I am correctly celebrating an anniversary. 60 years ago today, a plane-carrying rock musician's Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper crashed near Clear Lake, Iowa. All three, who had been touring the Midwest at the time, were killed in the crash, and it was one of the first great tragedies of rock and roll. Now, I, of course, was not alive back then. In fact, my dad would have been 14 and my mom would have been 12, and they wouldn't meet for a number of years. So why am I focusing on this event even if it doesn't apply to me, let alone my entire generation? Well, aside from it being a big anniversary in popular culture, some of this music actually did have an impact on me when I was a kid. And the premature death of an artist at a young age is something that, unfortunately, just about every generation from the baby boomers on down can relate to. I'm going to talk about what I know and what I like about those three artists, and I will cover the event of that day by taking a look at the specific episode of VH1's documentary series Behind the Music that covered the day the music died on February 3rd, 1999. Plus, I'm also going to talk about the song that gave the event its well-known name, and that is Don McLean's 1971 hit American Pie. So I would say that the beginning of this story would be 1956, which is when Buddy Holly and the Crickets began recording and releasing songs. But I'm actually going to start by fast-forwarding 30 years from them to 1986, and the soundtrack to the movie Stand By Me. I covered this movie a couple of years ago with Michael Bailey, and we spent a considerable amount of time talking about the soundtrack, which has a great selection of songs from the 50s and kicks off with Every Day which was the B-side to the band's hit Peggy Sue. Every day it's a getting closer Going faster than a roller coaster Love like yours will surely come my way Hey, hey, hey Every day it's a getting faster Everyone said go away Ask her, love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey, hey. This is my very first exposure to Buddy Holly, at least as far as I can remember. I may have already heard a number of his songs at that point, though, because one of the stations that my mom listened to in the car on a regular basis was New York oldie station CBS 101. I'm sure that some people listening to this are nodding their heads along to that. CBS 101 for years was New York's oldies station, and even during my years of pretending to be cool, emphasis on the word pretending because I was never ever cool, I did love listening to Cousin Brucey and would even catch his show on Sirius when I had satellite radio for a number of years. 
I've probably made this point elsewhere, but CBS 101 and later on other stations like WBAB 102.3, which is the classic rock station I listened to through most of high school, were really my kind of rock education. This is, this is what I listened to all the time. In fact, I could probably do a whole mixtape type of episode just on radio stations I did listen to back in junior high and high school, and maybe one day I will, but for now, I'm going to stick with 101, which along with the soundtracks to movies like Stand By Me and Dirty Dancing and The Big Chill, were my introduction to my parents' generation's music. And there was this big revival and newfound interest in stuff from the 1950s and 60s during the 80s. I mean, I guess you could say it technically started all with back in the early 70s with American Graffiti. It carried on with Happy Days, and it never really stopped. But from the 1950s-related time travel flicks like Back to the Future and Peggy Sue Got Married to movies that actually took place in that era, like Stand By Me and Dirty Dancing, and then later shows that took place in the 60s, such as The Wonder Years, you had kids and teenagers getting into what their parents were listening to. So much of what was in those movies and on those soundtracks are intertwined with an era that is now, well, it's now the 1950s to my son's 2010s. I don't think he thinks of the 80s that way, especially considering how much he loves listening to Thriller-era Michael Jackson, but I did want to at least acknowledge how old I'm getting. And I mention the movies because while I didn't get to know Buddy Holly through a movie, I did get to know Richie Valens through the 1987 biopic La Bamba. I saw this movie in New Hampshire back in August of 1987. It was the first time my parents had rented the cabin that they've been renting every summer since, and I remember that we drove all the way to Hanover to go see La Bamba at a movie theater there, or the movie theater might have been in Lebanon. Anyway, I think uh, those two particular towns are like right next to each other. But seriously, I had wanted to see it mainly because when my friend Tom and I would watch uh, MTV at his house, we would see the video for the Los Lobos version of La Bamba, as well as commercials for the movie, really almost constantly. And I'll talk a little bit about that Los Lobos song in a moment. First, I want to talk about what I do remember from the movie, because it was, it's was it been slightly more than 30 years since I watched it. Lou Diamond Phillips plays Richie Valens, and the story is about how Valens was a star on the rise who was a Chicano artist working in a system that was not friendly to non-white acts, especially anybody who was uh, Hispanic, Latino, Chicano. There's a storyline about his relationship with a girl named Donna, about whom he wrote one of his biggest hits. And the film ends with the events of the night of February 3rd, along with the supporting cast's reactions to the news of his death. I remember liking the film even though I don't think I fully understood everything about it and might go and rewatch it at some point. The music was pretty awesome, although I think that most of it was via covers because the soundtrack has songs by Los Lobos, uh, Marshall Crenshaw, who played Buddy Holly in the film, and Brian Setzer. The Los Lobos song, in fact, was a number one hit for the band in 1987. It won a video uh, music award for best video from a film. It's a pretty faithful cover of the Richie Valens version, which itself was a rock version of a Mexican folk song, although Los Lobos had the shine of a 1980s-era production team behind them. 
But what makes the song transcend its source material is the ending, uh, which is this incredible acoustic guitar solo. Sometimes radio stations would edit it out of when they played uh, the song or would fade out too quickly. But if you got to hear the whole version, you were treated to some serious uh, musicianship. In fact, I'm going to take us out with that outro because it's just so great. And really, that is my origin story with Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. And sadly, beyond the hello, baby, from the beginning of uh, his song Chantilly Lace, I really wasn't familiar with the Big Bopper as a kid. And while I did listen to some oldies off and on through the 90s, I really wouldn't learn any everything behind these artists' deaths until watching an episode of Behind the Music in 1999. And I'll be back with that after this. podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. In 1999, on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of the crash, VH1 produced an episode of their one-hour rockumentary series, Behind the Music. And if you were around in the late 1990s and early 2000s, you probably remember one of what was eventually 244 episodes of this show, as well as its narrator, Jim Forbes, and its urgent-sounding introduction music. The idea of the show was to bring to light the backstories of a number of important people in the history of pop or other 
well-known events or years or things. This included acts that were making a comeback at the time and that often coincided with the release of a comeback album or an anniversary tour. But there were also more infamous acts or events. For instance, the first two episodes were about Millie Vanilli and MC Hammer. And very often there was a shot of someone walking solemnly along the beach or something. The Day the Music Died was one of a number of event-focused episodes, others of which included Woodstock, Studio 54, and a number of significant years in music history, such as 1968, 1970, 1977, 1984, 1987, 1992, 1994, and 2000. Our episode opens with a prologue typical of many episodes, which is a summary of the central event, and after being told that we will be learning about the day the music died through interviews with people close to the three artists, home movies, and other archival footage, we jump to the night before and the performance at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, before heading back to the early days of rock and roll and the beginning of Buddy Holly's career, which was the first of the three to really get going, because when the Big Bopper and Richie Valens were on tour in 1959, their stars were very much on the rise. Holly and his band The Crickets released their first single, That'll Be The Day, in September of 1957, and then they had a huge hit with Peggy Sue, which was written about his drummer's girlfriend. Peggy Sue Guerin is interviewed, as well as Nikki Sullivan, who was one of the original guitarists for the Crickets, along with other people who were in the band Holly had formed after the Crickets broke up, post their 1957 tour, including Tommy Alsop and Waylon Jennings. Holly himself had a pretty quick rise to fame, but as I mentioned, the Crickets had been disbanded by 1958 because other band members found touring to be too grueling, and Holly moved to New York to pursue new opportunities, but his career did begin to stall. This is what led him to be one of the acts on the tour that was called the Winter Dance Party. I'll talk a little more about that later, but first what I'm going to do is get into talking about the backstories of the other two rockers, which is what the show also did. J.P. Richardson, also known as the Big Bopper, was a disc jockey who grew up poor and already had a family in 1958, so in order to support them, he began recording novelty songs. One of them was called The Purple People Eater Meets the Witch Doctor. The B-side of that was a song called Chantilly Lace. Hello, baby. Yeah, this is the Big Bopper speaking. <laughs> oh, you sweet thing. Do I want? Will I want? Oh, baby, you know what I like. Chantilly you're probably familiar with this one to some extent. It's got one of the most famous openings in rock and roll. It was, needless to say, a huge hit for the bopper, and he signed up for the tour in 1958 in order to promote the song, knowing that this would set his family up well. He already had a daughter, and his wife was pregnant with a boy. The money he was going to earn from the world from the tour would go to a recording studio he was building, so the bopper had plans to be a producer in Texas instead of being a musician on the road. Also on the rise was 17-year-old Richie Valens, who, when the plane crashed in February 1959, had only been around for eight months as a signed recording artist. He also had a poor upbringing, but songs such as Come On, Let's Go, Donna, and La Bamba made him a star quickly, and he even made enough money to buy his mother a house. The Winter Dance Party was going to be his first huge tour. 
I mentioned that the producers of Behind the Music interviewed a number of people associated with Buddy Holly, but they also went as deep as possible with people associated with the other two artists, as well as the concert and the tour. This included Bob Hale, who was a former DJ who was one of the people who was in Clear Lake, Iowa, working promotion for a local radio station, and broke the news over the airways that the three had died. Donna Ludwig Fox, the titular Donna. J.P. or J. Richardson, um, the Big Bopper's son. Richie Valen's sister and his aunt, Carol Anderson, who was the manager of the surf ballroom, and both Gary Busey and Lou Diamond Phillips, who played Buddy Holly and Richie Valens on film. And for what is really just a basic cable show that probably didn't have an enormous production budget, it's a pretty tightly produced show with a pretty deep dive into the history of this event. I'm sure that they could have just taken the cheap way out by, or the easy way out, by using archival footage that existed, still performance shot, but in addition to the interviews with family members, they show what were obviously private home movies that had rarely, if ever, been seen. It gave me the impression that whoever was in charge of this particular episode really did care about what they were producing. The rest of the show focuses on the Winter Dance Party Tour and the actual night of February 2nd to February 3rd, 1959. The tour was of most of the Midwest, and it involved traveling by bus through what was an incredibly long, cold winter. Moreover, the tour itself was, a pretty, ter- was pretty terribly arranged. Instead of going through the various regions or states of the Midwest kind of in an order, the tour organizer had the bus zigzagging from place to place, and that meant for longer trips and pretty low morale among the performers. In fact, Clear Lake, Iowa was not even originally on the schedule. They had an open date, and the surf ballroom wound up being booked. When they arrived in Clear Lake, Buddy Holly, who was tired of riding buses and wanted time to rest and, as is pointed out in the documentary, do his laundry and otherwise recuperate, chartered a plane for himself and his band, which is um, Tommy Alsop and Waylon Jennings, to fly to Fargo, North Dakota for the next show after they finished the show at the surf ballroom. That show, according to Bob Hale, the Surf Ballroom show, was completely sold out, and despite the musicians' fatigue from the road, it was outstanding. They then headed to the airfield around midnight, and in a story that's become pretty well known by now, Valens and the Bopper found their way onto the plane instead of Alsop and Jennings. Jennings switched places with the Big Bopper, who was coming down with the flu, and thought the prospect of a long bus ride would make things worse. Alsop flipped a coin with Valens, and he lost the coin toss. Famously, Holly joked to Jennings that he hoped his bus broke down, and Jennings retorted, well, I hope your plane crashes. Something that he said was obviously meant as a joke back then, but did haunt him for years. The plane got off the ground, but was flying into a snowstorm and really should have never taken off. But the pilot, whose name was Roger Peterson, never got the U.S. Weather Service's weather advisory. The plane then crashed about five miles northwest of the airport, killing Peterson and all three musicians. Peterson was killed in the cockpit, but the other three were thrown from the plane. Now, I could have gotten all of this from Wikipedia, because there is a pretty extensive entry on the day the music died. But I use this as my source of information, this this behind the music special, for three reasons. First, while I knew that Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper had died in a plane crash, this was how I really learned about them and what exactly happened that night. Second, as I said earlier, it's a nice, concise 45 to 50 minute show. Third, it's what comes after the discussion of the plane crash that makes this worth viewing. 
The people who were interviewed talk about how they found out that the three of them had died or how the families found out, which wasn't exactly directly. Nikki Sullivan, the former crickets guitarist, had called Holly's mother to see how she was handling the news, and he actually wound up breaking it to her because she hadn't heard already. Donna found out from a classmate. Holly's wife, who was pregnant, um, had miscarried her baby about three months after the crash. And Jay Richardson, who was born um, shortly after the crash uh, happened, never knew his father growing up. The other mission musicians didn't find out. The ones in the bus didn't find out until the next morning when they arrived at the hotel in Fargo. And in fact, still had to, and they had to go on state that night. They were not, the, the show was not canceled. And there are some moments in this section where they're talking about um, their reactions to hearing about the crash, the aftermath of the crash, etc. Where it's clear that the people who are being interviewed who, and who are close to the, the musicians or, or the events themselves still have a hard time talking about it. Because even after what was then 40 years ago at the time, this tragedy still carried some pain. The Behind the Music episode then goes into the cultural legacy of the event, including the two feature films, The Buddy Holly Story and La Bamba. It also talks about two songs that directly address the tragedy. The first is Three Stars by Tommy D, which was also performed by Eddie Cochran. Look up in the sky Up towards the north There are three new stars Brightly shining forth They're shining oh so bright From heaven above Gee, we're gonna miss you Sends her love. Richie, you were just starting to realize your dreams. Everyone calls me a kid, but you were only 17. And the other, of course, is Don McLean's American Pie, which I'll talk about in more detail in the next segment of this episode. But they did interview McLean for the episode, and he does say that the opening of the song was inspired by how he found out about the plane crash, and the single had originally been dedicated to Buddy Holly. In fact, the song is the major reason the name The Day the Music Died has been given to this event, and while it doesn't ne- didn't necessarily save it from obscurity, it definitely helped remind people of its importance, as well as helped contribute to what was a revival in interest in the 1950s and early 1960s during much of the 70s and 80s, especially of the music and the legacy of these three artists. I found the episode in six parts on YouTube, and I will link to the playlist I made of them so you can watch it in its entirety because it's a very good show. And I looked up some of the people interviewed to see what has happened to them since they were interviewed in 1999. Sadly, many of them are no longer alive. I couldn't find anything about DJ Bob Hale past 2011 when he was involved with some weird argument in the media with Dion and the Belmonts because uh, Dion and the Belmonts were one of the other acts of the Winter Dance Party Tour and uh, there there was an argument over whether or not Dion was actually present between at the famous coin toss between Richie Valens and, the big, and uh, Tommy Alsop. Um, Donna is still alive and last I could see she was living in Sar- Sacramento and at one point was a mortgage broker. Former Crickets guitarist Nick Sullivan died in t- 2004. 
Tommy Alsop died in 2017. Waylon Jennings passed away in 2002. Peggy Sue Guerin uh, passed away just a few months ago as of my recording this at the age of 78. Carol Anderson, who was the manager of the Surf Ballroom, died in 2006. The Surf Ballroom, by the way, still stands, and it is now on the National Register of Historic Places. It is still operation as a concert hall, and every year in the last few weeks of January and early into the first couple of weeks in early February, they host what they call the Winter Dance Party. It's a several-night stand of various artists um, coming in, just kind of a, a concert block. Um, you have shows by acts who are classic rock and rollers. I noticed that Chubby Checker was playing this year, but cover acts and even more slightly modern artists wendy and carney wilson are among them and looks like uh, they still do a pretty good business and i believe they also have some sort of small museum develop, uh, devoted to the big bopper and richie valens and buddy holly so that is the gist of of what happened what happened on the day that music died and what i'm gonna do is take a break and when i get back i'm gonna talk about that song that gave it its name i'm gonna do a segment on american pie by Don McLean. Stick around. Enjoy movie scores. Do you like science fiction? like fantasy and do you like movies uh, uh everything's under control situation normal what happened uh had a slight weapons malfunction but uh everything's perfectly all right now we're fine we're all fine here now thank you how are you well, I have a podcast for you, Soundtrack Alley. It's a podcast where I take you on a journey through the time of my childhood and beyond to give you a glimpse into the world of movies, science fiction, fantasy, and other films that touch me on a personal level. You'll also enjoy interviews from film composers from famous movies from the past or even current times. Enjoy the interaction I have with guests on my show every so often, and check out other shows that share in guest spots. So sit back, relax, and let the soundtrack world wash over you. And check out Soundtrack Alley. You'll love it. A long, long time ago, 
I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver with every paper I'd deliver. Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride. But something touched me deep inside the day the music died. So bye bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, "This'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die." Did you write the book of love? And So my original idea for this episode was really just to talk about American Pie. It's a song that I have loved for going on, oh, 30 years? But knowing that this anniversary was coming up, I decided to cover both the event and the song. Like I said, I first heard this song probably about 30 years ago because I remember hearing it on the radio on one of our long vacation car rides. And I think it was probably when we were headed up to that lake in New Hampshire in July of 89. In fact, I know it was at least 88 or 89, because in the fall of 89, I took home ec in the seventh grade, and I remember my teacher, Mrs. Klopacki, had a stack of old 45s. We were using it for some project. I don't remember what it was. Um, but among them was American Pie, and, and we didn't play it, but I do remember the song, and I saw the title. I was like, oh, that's that song, Bye Bye, Miss American Pie, because... By the time you got to the end of it, you could sing along to it because they say the phrase so many times. Because it's just a long song. Anyway, by the time I was in ninth or 10th grade and I was regularly taping songs off the radio, I heard American Pie on WBAB um, and uh, managed to catch it in the middle of the first couple of notes. There are a couple of moments of static in there. I remember once the song ended, another song began DJs used to do that all the time, of course, but I didn't care. I used to rewind that tape and lip sync the hell out of it in my room when I was younger. The song itself had its genesis in the late 1960s and was eventually recorded and released in 1971, even hitting number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for four weeks in 1972. At a full running time of eight minutes and 37 seconds, it is the longest song to ever hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. There have been a few arguments over the song's origins since 1971, with different bars and music venues claiming to be the place where McLean wrote the song or first performed it. There's also a running list of various interpretations of the lyrics, including an entire website that went verse by verse through what the writer said McLean meant. 
This was one of a number of interpretations it takes of the song as a very literal walk through the 1960s, although there are quite a number of that take the entire song to be about the death of Buddy Holly. McLean has been purposely vague about the song's meaning and has explained bits and pieces about it over the years, best summing it up by saying that it presents an abstract story of his life from the late 1950s to the 1960s that echoes how America was changing during this era. When he auctioned off a copy of the working draft of the lyrics a couple of years ago for $1.2 million, he was quoted as saying, Basically, in American Pie, things are headed in the wrong direction. It, meaning life, is becoming less idyllic. I don't know whether you consider that wrong or right, but it is a morality song in a sense. I'm going to go with that because it's hard for me to concretely say anything about American Pie or, well, the 1960s because obviously I wasn't there. But listening to the song and reading about it, I understand McLean's point about this being a song that is about America. In a way, it is sort of a try at writing the great American novel or the great American story. It takes the experiences of a generation and encapsulates them into that work. Consider, for instance, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This is a novel that focuses on a specific era of the 1920s, but it ends up transcending its setting to tell us of the failure of what we often refer to as the American dream and the hollowness of worshipping unbridled wealth and materialism. McLean, if we are taking him literally, is looking at the 1960s, starting with Holly's death and ending with the tragic concert at Altamont in 1969 that resulted in the death of a young woman named Meredith Hunter. And McLean has said that that verse, that final verse, and as I watched him on the stage, my hands were drenched in fists of rage, clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan spell. He says that is referencing Altamont, so it's not too far-fetched to say that there is a literal walk through the 60s here in one sense or another. But even he says it's more than that. And if I can take a more English teacher view of it, because busting out Gatsby wasn't enough, what McLean's done here is written an elegy. The textbook definition of an elegy is a lament or sadly meditative poem, often written on the occasion of a death or another solemn theme. Some of the more famous are Alfred Lord Tennyson's In Memoriam A.H.H., which is also known as just In Memoriam. It includes the lines, I hold it true, whate'er befall, I feel it when I sorrow most. Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Thomas Gray's elegy written in a country churchyard and A.E. Houseman's To an Athlete Dying Young are other very famous elegy poems. And I'm going to spend a little time with To an Athlete Dying Young because I was re- I, I thought of it um, when I uh, saw the definition of elegy and I was looking at it and, and, and I read it and I was like, oh, this there's something in common here with American Pie. So let me go ahead and read it to you. The time you won your town the race, we cheered you through the marketplace. Man and boys stood cheering by, and home re-brought you shoulder high. Today the road all runners come, shoulder high we bring you home, and set you at your threshold down, townsmen of a stiller town. Smart lad to slip bedtimes away from fields where glory does not stay, and early though the laurel grows, it withers quicker than the rose. Eyes the shady night has shut can not see the record cut, and silence sounds no worse than cheers after earth has stopped the ears. Now you will not smell the rout of lads that wore their honors out, runners whom renown outran and the name died before the man. 
so set before its echoes fade, the fleet foot on the sill of shade, and hold to the low lintel up the still-defended challenge cup. And round that early laurel head will flock to gaze the strengthless dead, and find unwithered on its curls the garland briefer than a girl's. As much as this seems to be just about an athlete, and as much as McLean's song seems to be just about rock and roll, or Buddy Holly, or the 1960s. They're both elegies for youth, and they're elegies for innocence. Houseman is saying in some way that the death of an athlete at such a young age preserves all he is in that moment. It is such an odd thing to be celebratory about. Maybe it's he's being ironic. Shit, I'm probably misinterpreting everything just so I can force a point here. But even though there are plenty of aging rock stars out there, rock and roll is still so much about capturing the essence of youth that I can't help consider that Houseman's poem directly applies to Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens. And that McLean takes that idea and writes an elegy for the innocence of his generation, complete with a tone that, while not completely sad, echoes the style of the youth he is mourning. And there is mourning in the tone of mourning, as you heard in the opening of the song, which started the segment. And I've always loved how American Pie both begins and ends, because it is so much more intimate than its middle, which is this raucous at times, it tumbles through the entire period of a decade where McLean himself went from his early teens to his early 20s. Now for 10 years we've been on our own, and moss grows fat on a rolling stone, but that's not how it used to be. So, it is in a big sense his own waking up to the world, just as that world seems to be completely turning itself inside out and upside down. But then you get to this ending. I met a girl who sang the blues, and I asked her for some happy news, but she just smiled and turned away. I went down to the sacred store where I'd heard the music years before, but the man there said the music wouldn't play. And in the streets the children screamed, the lovers cried and the poets dreamed, but not a word was spoken. The church bells all were broken. And the three men I admire most The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost They caught the last train for the coast The day the music died This has the same elegiac tone, reverent and yet sad, as the opening. And if this is a reference to Janis Joplin, the girl who sang the blues, and she had died in 1970, it's appropriate considering that the 1960s were bookended by the deaths of very popular rock stars. And while I'm looking on McLean's lyrics with a sense of what the last nearly 50 years have brought, I can see how this represents a cycle that is bound to continue. Rock and roll has had its share of tragedy amidst all of its triumphs. Just eight years after American Pie charted the 1970s end with the tragic deaths of John Bonham, Keith Moon, and John Lennon all within a few months of each other in 1980. Then in 1984, you have the suicide of Kurt Cobain, which was one of the defining moments of my generation when it comes to rock and roll. 
in between and since, there are many other people who have passed away tragically young, and I realize that I'm simplifying here for brevity's sake, and that I probably shouldn't put too much stock in the work of lives of or lives of musicians or any other celebrity for that matter. But when you're a fan of music and you wind up getting really into a particular band or artist, those people do become part of you in some way. It sounds silly, but so many of us as teenagers are, are searching for some sort of identity, so we, we turn to them. Lyrics speak to us, their music fills us with fills this emotional hole we have, and sometimes we even emulate them through dressing like them or adopting their attitude or their look. But there comes a day when that ends, and if that ends comes tragically, it can be jarring. For most of the time I was prepping this episode, I kept coming back to a scene from American Graffiti. It's an exchange between John Milner, played by Paul Lamatt, and Carol, who's played by Mackenzie Phillips. He's been driving her around for a while, and at one point a song by the Beach Boys is playing, and Milner shuts it off, and Carol says, Why'd you do that? Milner says, I don't like that surfing shit. Rock and roll's been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. Carol, don't you think the Beach Boys are boss? John Milner, you would, you grungy little twerp. Carol, grungy, you big weenie. If I had a boyfriend, he'd pound you. Milner, yeah, sure. I wish I had that clip or had the time to to rip that or something and not just do my really bad imitation of Mackenzie Phillips and uh, Paul Lamatt. But I think it all really fits this episode, not just because of the reference to Buddy Holly, but knowing that that movie takes place in 1962, the, the, the very, very end of the summer of 1962, in fact, and it's about a generation of teenagers who are just on the verge of the tumult of the rest of the decade, makes it really appropriate. 62 is a year before the Kennedy assassination, and we even find out that at the end of the film, at least one of the characters winds up going MIA in Vietnam. This encapsulates, in a sense, the first up-tempo verse of American Pie. And while I think that Carol's hanging out with Milner is partially to show how kind of ridiculous he is in a way, after all, he's he's the Wooderson of the crew. He's way too old to be cruising around with the high school kids. And she's in junior high. Um, it also shows how they stand on either side of a generational divide, one that perhaps is delineated by the death of Buddy Holly. Granted, that's conjecture on my part. I'm kind of projecting my own joke about a generational divide where um, the, the death of Kurt Cobain is that dividing line between uh, the very tail end of Generation X and I think the early, early millennials because I used to jokingly refer to it as the Nirvana-Britney Spears generational divide. But anyway, and for all I know, that's not what George Lucas was going for when he wrote this movie. Anyway, why do I have this attraction to this event? Why... Am I focusing on February 3rd, 1959? Well, it's because of the way that this was the music of another generation and a tragic event that having seen similar things happen to stars of mine, I could relate to. I could see how our experiences as teenagers can be universal despite the passage of half a century or so when I hear Don McLean's elegy for innocence and youth, and I can see even my generation looking back at what we've been through. And while it not be as tum- may not be as tumultuous, we definitely have been affected. Thankfully, as trite as this will sound, I think that American Pie ends on a hopeful note. The last part of the song is the chorus sung twice, first by McLean, 
only with his guitar, but then by the entire band. Yes, it ends with a sing-along, and it has the feel of a guy and his friends drunk at the end of a night, not lamenting their lost youth, but almost celebrating it, sending it off to the great beyond with thanks. Because after all, we'll be all right. And I'll be back in a moment with listener feedback. And they were singing Bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And them good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die They were singing Bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry Them good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this'll be the day that I die My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a Back to the Men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular and then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough so it's better to just set it up oh, okay it, do, it really doesn't work well so i checked right. uh i checked my uh what's mm-hmm. it called? my okay it definitely built built me for the hotel for all three of us join back to the bins every week for goodness solomon grundy hate voiceovers So I have some feedback. I'm going to start with the one email I have. It's from Dion Balasation. I apologize for uh, completely mispronouncing your last name, Dion. From Honolulu, Hawaii. He is emailing in about episode 91, which was Titans Together. He says, Hi, Tom. Great show you put together, and it covered content when I was heavily into my comics reading. The New Teen Titans was a title I bought off the rack from issue 23 to 50, and those were some of the best comics DC published during that time period. I no longer collect or read comics as a personal activity, although as a librarian I buy trades for my library's young adult collection, but I enjoy listening to podcasts covering my sweet spot of comics reading, which lasted from 81 to 84. Keep up the good work. Until next time. Regards... Dion, thank you, Dion. And hey, um, I love the fact that libraries carry uh, graphic novels, both adult and young adult. I check them out all the time. Um, I love seeing my school library where I work 
with a huge graphic novel section. I love going into my library and seeing it. And uh, you know, keep up the good work. You're doing. A, it's just. It's. It's such a great thing to see that that um, libraries. The library, my my library is awesome, and I'm just so happy to be there every time I'm there, and I'm so happy to see like you know, you guys really are, uh, you guys really do curate in a way that is uh, really helpful to young people. All right, so we got some Facebook comments as well on episode 91. Uh, J. David Weeder, he of various podcasts, uh, which I sorry Dave, I don't know which one you've got going. I know there's the the Dave's Daredevil podcast for a while. You have the Dave Cave. I don't know which one is active and which one isn't. I'm behind on these things probably because I should stop listening to political conspiracy podcasts and true crime podcasts and maybe listen to the ones that my friends produce. Huh. Anyway, he says, I consistently enjoy the show, Tom, but this episode may be the absolute best you've ever made. Tidies, Titans plus, plus 80s pop equals next level awesomeness. Uh, Brian, he said, agree with him. I, I really had fun putting that episode together. Um, I long ago had decided that if I were ever to do a Titans Index show, that's basically what I would have been doing. And that's really the reason I don't do a Titans Index show. Um, aside from the fact that I think there's at least one out there. But that, as much as I loved that episode, I actually listened to that episode like two or three times. At least twice. Um, and I never listen to my episodes more than once after they drop because I always give it one more listen to see if there's anything that got really screwed up. To be completely honest with you, I listened to it twice because I enjoyed it that much. I had such fun putting it together, but I will tell you, it took a very long time um, to pick the music, to the clips, to just, it was just, it was a labor. And um, that's why I was like, you know what? This is why I don't do it. I mean, maybe I'll do another segment of, of, of comics down the line very similar to that or something um, with the Titans, with the 80s or something. But uh, but thank you. I'm really glad that I, I got some positive feedback. Michael Bailey messaged me a couple of times and said he really, really enjoyed it. And um, I just really appreciated that because that was really fun to do. Um, I got a couple of Facebook comments, or at least a Facebook comment, on my episode 92, which is VH History. And uh, the first one is from Luke Giaconetti. He said he really enjoyed this episode, Tom. We were early VHS adopters, and I had plenty of blank VHS tapes that I recorded stuff on. Bat plenty of Batman the Animated Series, X-Men, Power Rangers, and other kids stuff, but also plenty of movies off HBO, and of course, lots and lots of wrestling Still have some of them kicking around in my bonus room, but my love of VHS is well established. On a side note, my kids love the Garfield holiday specials. We'd watch Halloween pretty much every year after trick-or-treating, and then Thanksgiving in the evening after turkey. Christmas is mixed in with a dozen or so other Christmas specials. Yeah, I love um, the Garfield Christmas. It's it's so good. Um, Luke, Luke does a number of really good shows. Uh, the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, he and his brother Jason are huge wrestling fans um and it's it's great it's always great to talk to luke and, and see what he's got going um so check him out over on two true freaks speaking of two true freaks we got gene Hendricks. he says it doesn't matter when i watch an old christmas special but i always expect to see this commercial during it probably because it was shown just about every special that we taped for later viewing hard-nosed mrs hatcher Talk you can get. Today we'll be reading chapters three, four. You can never win her over. Thanks, Judith. I'll do this. Catcher had no pet. Forget the excuses. There's no way to reach her. My homework flew out the bus window. 
I didn't do it. Our only break was a substitute teacher. Mrs. Hatcher's absent, there will be no test. When things got wrong, I'll never get it. She made us stick to it. She pushed. I got it. And pushed. I knew you could do it. I hope I'm not hardened as Mr. Panneries. Anyway, that'll do it. If everything goes according to plan, my next episode, I don't know when it'll be, hopefully in March, is going to guest star Amanda. And we're going to be talking about stuff from 1995, especially one of our mutually favorite movies, Clueless. Until then, check out the blog for some essays and check out my brand new blog, The Uncollecting, which is where I'm writing about my efforts to consume all of the media that I've owned and let pile up and then decide if I want to keep it, if it's worth it, etc., etc. I'm doing a lot of reviews and reflections. Um, it's a little bit rough at the moment, but I'm trying to get some content out, and I'm sure it'll be polished as we go through the year. But that is at theuncollecting.com. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. And, of course, you can also leave me Facebook feedback. You can send me emails, and uh, I'd love to see an iTunes review or two. I don't think it's, it's been quite a while since I got one of those. So I'll be back soon, and until then, as always, thanks for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review at illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Come on, come on, let's go.